you will turn to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. I'm sorry, Matthew. Let me tell you what we're going to do for the next few weeks. We're going to exegete this scripture. We are at the beginning of a 10-year journey towards spiritual maturity, and you know that this year we are examining, trying to find what purpose God had for making us. The beginning of that search begins not with us, but with God. And so our first uh, assumption, our, our first conclusion, rather, was the biblical theme that God had created the world in order to make a people for himself so that they might experience his love and the joy of living out his character. And we said that God developed mankind in such a way that he made that possible by initiating covenants. And those covenants, as he put them into history, all contain the elements necessary for intimacy. Not just our intimacy with him, but our intimacy with one another. And then we began to examine the everyday implications of those covenants. Now, we do this for a reason. If we begin to search for our purpose, not in the context of relationships, we will become very task-oriented, and we will believe that we were put here to do instead of to love. And so we want to stick very, very close to the context of relationships right at the beginning. Well, last week I talked about God's relationship that he had built into the man and the woman and how that in some ways could be a paradigm for what he wanted for all relationships, the covenant closeness, the foreverness. And I found that in response to that sermon, <laughs> there are many with questions and there are many of the people of God who are not ready to go on to find their purpose until they bring some resolution. To, to relationships that they have right now, hurt-filled relationships. I'm hearing a couple of things, and so I'm just canning the rest of the preaching schedule, and I'm going to spend the next few few messages on this topic. Hearing a couple of things. First of all, I'm hearing from many of you that you are assuming that you have blown plan A, that God does not have for you the best because of the relationships in which you failed. And that's simply not true. That's not what Scripture says. And so, in order to bring some resolution to that, um, to that hangover of guilt or, or, or uh, uh, that martyr sense uh, that I, I can't go on from here, I can't really seek what purpose God has for my life because I blew that a long time ago, I want to talk about ideal relationships. The second reason that I want to spend some time is this. Some of you are in great pain and frustration and consternation right now. And it's very difficult for you to concentrate on the future because the, he the, the present weighs so heavy in your heart. And so I would like to offer you a series of teaching, not on how to fix your relationships right now, but how to ultimately build ideal relationships even with the relationships you have right now. Now, those are two different things, as you will hear. I want you to look at your outline in the bulletin, and I want to say the next three messages will be according to that outline, 
But I am only today going to address the first point of the outline. Next message will be the second point of that outline. And the third message will be the third point of that outline. Today, I'm going to tell you four principles for building an ideal relationship. No matter where you are right now, starting right now, four principles for building an ideal relationship. Next week, I want to talk about how you rebuild a vision for the ideal once that vision's gone away. And then the third week is I want to talk about rebuilding life after destruction. Some of you have literally been destroyed. And I want to talk about what it takes to rebuild life after the destruction. Now, read this scripture with me. Starting with verse 3. Some of the Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Now, let me stop right there and give you some of the historical context. There was a verse, you can turn to it if you like, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Moses had given a verse allowing for a certificate of divorce. And the 24th chapter, the first verse of Deuteronomy reads like this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Then he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and so on and so forth. Now, there were two schools of Hebrew tradition. One was the conservative school, the Shammai school. And it said that the interpretation of that word indecency means only sexual impurity. If he sees in her a sexual impurity, then divorce is justified. There was a much more liberal school of divorce. The Hillel school, the school of theology, interpretation. And it said, look, anything can be an indecency. Whenever the man finds an indecency, and the woman couldn't divorce the man, but whenever a, a, a man finds a, a... Yeah, I know. Whenever, <laughs> whenever a man finds an indecency in a woman, whatever that indecency is, that's what it applies to. If she ruins his supper... That could, if she talks too much, that could do. If she embarrasses him in part, see. Now, by the time Jesus came on the scene, the divorce rate was. There were as many people getting divorced as there were getting married. Does this sound familiar to you? Because human nature, being what it was, came to that Hillel school and said, this is where I'll live. Thank you very much. If i got a choice between two interpretations, okay, I'm going to live here. They come then to Jesus. They're not asking a theological question. They're asking a political question. Which side are you going to come down on? Look what Jesus does. It says... And he answered and said, now I'm going to read through the rest of the scripture. Have you not read, now remember that, have you not read, that's one of the principles, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and sent her away, send her away. And he said to them, 
Well, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted. Look at what he, look what he does. He changes the word command to permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, there's that phrase again, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, what's he said? He said the same thing as Moses did. Watch. And the disciples said to him, they just get this shock. They get the shock on their face because he is saying literally to them, there's no way out. And they say, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. And he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given, for there are eunuchs and so on and so forth. Now, I'll tell you about that later on. Let me tell you where we're going with this. The first principle in building an ideal relationship, no matter what relationships you have right now, is this. You've got to determine where your main source of knowledge is going to come from. You've got to examine your epistemology. Do it in private so that you don't embarrass yourself. But you've got to examine where your main source of knowledge and truth is going to come from. Jesus immediately went to Scripture. Have you not read? That was his source of knowledge and truth. Now, traditionally, historically, there are three main sources of dependence or formulation of the truth. One is by human logic. Historically, this has been called the school of rationalism. And it says... If we think about it long enough, we are logical creatures, we can deduce what is true. Now this is not a concept foreign to Christianity, it is included in Scripture. If you read Acts chapter 19 verse 8, you will read that Paul entered the synagogue and for weeks reasoned with them, it says. Now there's a, there's a little hitch to that reasoning, the reason uh, has an implication that, it, that it, it went into full debate. He was persuade, reasoning and persuading them. And the way you did it in the Jewish synagogues, well, you argued about a point. We, the men's Bible study got in an argument uh, the other morning. We were debating rather loudly, you know, and I said, Guys, this is terrific. This is the way they used to do it in the, in the Jewish seminaries. And, and there was a guy who had been brought up in a Jewish home, and he said, This is what they do in a Jewish supper table every night. <laughs> and, but that's what reason is included in Scripture, but it is not the source of knowledge. The second school says, look, it's what I've experienced that is really real to me. And so what I've experienced is the truth. This is the school of empiricism. It says that we can fool ourselves by logic. And logic simply creates wonderful, beautiful, symmetrical ideas. But that doesn't say anything about reality. So therefore, what I observe is really what's important. Now again, this is not a foreign concept to Scripture. If you read in Mark 10, verses 2 and 3, I think it is, Jesus is, or somewhere along there, Jesus is, is saying to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And the, and the Pharisees come up and they say, wait a minute, you don't have the power to do this. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power 
to forgive sins, I say to you, rise up, take up your bed and walk. See, I want you to see it. I want you to observe it as part of your knowledge. Remember in the ninth chapter of John, the blind man. They were asking him for theological conclusions about Jesus. Who is this guy? And all he could come up with was this. I don't know. All I know was that I was blind and now I see. That's all I know. So you see, that source is also valid within Scripture. But it is not the ultimate source of knowledge. The ultimate source of knowledge, if you will turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, you will see one of the verses in which the ultimate source of knowledge is revealed. You go back to the primary source. In the beginning was the Word. Not only did Jesus refer immediately to Scripture, have you not read, but he also referred to the one who interprets it for us. John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Don't tell me the Trinity is not in Scripture. It's in this verse, for crying out loud. Don't, it doesn't make any sense for people who say, Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. Right here it is. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Remember this. For a Christian, there is a source of knowledge that the rest of the world does not have. It is our main source of knowledge. We have the other sources in common with the world, but they are not our main source of knowledge. So in order to build an ideal relationship, you first have to say to yourself, I will depend upon the Word of God and upon the interpretation of the Holy Spirit for my formulation of the truth. Not just for what is real to me. There are a lot of things that are real to me. But I can be fooled by my logic because there is no such thing as objective reasoning. I always have an agenda. And I'd always like it to come out a certain place. There is no such thing as objective interpretation of experience. I always have an agenda. Therefore, you must have the help of the Holy Spirit in order to interpret correctly, in order to formulate what is the truth. Okay, second principle is this. For, for building ideal relationships, you use the original ideal as the main reference point. Look at what Jesus did. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and so on and so forth? And in verse 8, it says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. You see what he does? He hopscotch, he, 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 he leapfrogs, that's better, he leapfrogs over the conflict in order to get into clearer ground. Now, those of you with children, when you walk into a room and two kids are fighting and you try to get to the bottom of that argument, how often can you? You could stay there all day long, and nine times out of ten, well, he did this, well, he did this, well, he did this, well, he did first, he did first, and he did that. See? Parents, you can drive yourself crazy, and you find it, and they go, both of you go to your room, just go to your room. Why? Because the source of the conflict 
is usually not in the conflict itself. It usually precedes the conflict. The conflict is only a sign of that source. Now here's two reasons why when you are having a conflict in a relationship, you can't make that the focal point of your attention. Number one, you will be consumed and begin to believe that the central portion of your relationship is that conflict. You will begin to focus so much on that that you will associate the relationship with that conflict. And you will forget what God originally had intended for that relationship. And you will get so angry, you don't care whether the thing's resolved or not. As a matter of fact, you'd rather be mad. It is so important to continue to go back and say, what did God have in mind when he put this person in my life? What was his ideal? Otherwise, you become so depressed at what this relationship has sunk to. I see people all over the place so depressed about what this society has sunk to. What the church has sunk to. Now they've got some real and truthful concerns. But when we can't see what hope God has for us, because we are so busy looking at the problems we have, we have just joined the other side. You know what? I was talking to a guy the other day who's in a recovery group, and I, lo- I think recovery groups are great. But he came in here and he said, my leader in this recovery group, and I don't know how many people there are in this thing, opened up with this. Does anybody know, anybody in this group know of one functional relationship? The guy goes, well, I know one. He's thinking of somebody in the church here. I know one. I'm thinking, holy cow, how depressing can you get? Do you mean to tell me that as we look at people, all we can see is dysfunctional relationships? Do you mean to tell me that in this church or in this world, there are no functional relationships? Are you kidding? You see what happens when you begin to focus on problems instead of ideals. You begin to see, you think, the problems are everywhere instead of God's working being everywhere. I listened to Chuck Swindoll the other day. Now, Chuck Swindoll, I love Chuck Swindoll. And Chuck Swindoll said this. I couldn't believe it. He said, this is the lo- something we can all agree on. This is the lowest point in history for man's moral development. And I thought to myself, Chuck's had a real bad day. <laughs> real bad day. Or he hasn't taken a look at history lately. Because I can take you a lot of slots in history where it was real bad. You see, there's something that doesn't let us, when we focus only on the problem, instead of on the ideal, only on the conflict, instead of on the ideal, that doesn't let us get out of it, to have any perspective whatsoever. And so, secondly, we are demotivated even to solve it. We say, look... Even if this thing gets solved, I don't want to live with this jerk. I don't want to be in a relationship with this person. Because now, I've seen who they really are. Nah. I'll tell you a story about Lincoln. There was, during the Civil War, 
a running dialogue between he and his chief, uh, um, I forget, Secretary of Defense, we'd call him in, in these days, uh, the manager of the army, Stanton, a conversation that was a continuing frustration because these generals would just go ahead and do whatever they wanted to and not consult. And communication was so poor. and they'd, So they'd come in and Stanton really would get angry, you know, and Lincoln would get angry too sometimes. Well, Stanton came in one day and said, talking about this general, and just was reading the riot act to Lincoln. He was so angry and so frustrated. And he said, you know what I feel like doing? He said, I feel like just sitting down and writing a letter to this guy and telling him exactly what I think of him. Lincoln said, why don't you go ahead and do that? Well, he was really taken back. He said, all right, I will. Two days later, Stanton comes back with this pages and pages. And Lincoln's looking through this. said, wow, you didn't leave anything out here, did you? He hands it back to him and said, okay, now throw it away. Stanton said, what? He said, throw it away. He said, look, you needed to say that. You needed to say that. You feel better. But I want you to remember, we're in a war. We are fighting the war with this guy. He's on our side. He's not the enemy. Can you hear what I'm saying to you about your relationships? Your relationships are not the enemy. Your partners are not the enemy. You're in a war. And you need them. You're on the same side. When you just focus on the problems, you can't remember that. The difference between great leadership and simply good military thinking is remembering who's on whose side. Third, it's important to use sin rather than the system as the causative reference. Now, this is where I get the title from, or or the subtitle. Sin in relationships, not just dysfunction. Now, let me say something very important here, because I don't want you to get mis- I don't want you to misinterpret. Christian counselors are a wonderful thing, and there is such a thing as dysfunction. And we do need to examine the systems in which we live, and we do need to avail ourselves of their insight and their help. But it is very important. If you're going to use Scripture as your ultimate source of what the truth is, that you not confuse the wickedness and deceitfulness of the human heart and think that the problem is not that, it's really the system you're tied up into. There are problems with systems, but that is not the causative factor. Let me just walk you through Scripture for a minute here, okay? and give you something that will help you understand this scripture even a little bit better. If you will turn to Genesis chapter 3, I want to show you paradise. I want to show you in verse 6, a woman who is living in paradise, who has all of her needs answered. And look at what it says. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, who are you going to blame that on? Was it a lousy family situation? I mean, did her, did her, did her mama push her off her tricycle when he was three? Was it, was it not going good with Adam, you know? And so she just had this thing where she had to eat something, 
you know? This is paradise for crying out loud. God told her not to do it. She did it. Where did it come from? From inside. There wasn't anybody who forced her to do that. Now, as soon as she partook, that was a causative factor for the blocks in the relationships. God came walking, and Adam, as soon as he faced that, what have you done? Well, it's a woman's fault. Came to eat, well, it's a serpent's fault. You see, right there is a relational back, uh, breakdown. But it wasn't a system's cause. There was something in a heart. The desire, listen, the desire for something that made her want to switch sources. If I wasn't going to get it from God, I was going to get it on my own. I was going to get it from somebody else. But the desire of the heart that made her switch relationships. Look at chapter 4. Look at chapter 4 of Genesis. This happens again. Abel was a keeper of the flocks, verse 2, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So that came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now it hurts when your countenance falls. Also makes a loud noise. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, listen to this, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now what did God, did God come and say, Now look, I know about all this sibling rivalry stuff. You know, I'm God. I know how brothers grow up and you just hate one another and so on and so forth and it's a bad system. I, I, it was the best I could come up with. Off, you know. hmm. Did he say, look, I know your parents have been blaming each other for being kicked out of Eden, you know, so you picked that up from your parents, now you're blaming... Hmm. He came to Cain and said, look, here's something you can do. If you want to do it, you'll have a reward. Did Cain want to do it? No. Sin ate his lunch. Then he ate him. And instead of doing what would please God, instead of measuring up to the standards that God gave him that he was perfectly able to measure up to, he killed his brother. He wanted to displace the frustration for wanting something onto somebody else. See? Where did it come from? From in here. Wasn't his brother's fault? Wasn't his parents' fault? His. See, came from in here. Look at something. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 20. I want to show you the bookends of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, verse 3, is about our desire, our lusting after what we don't have instead of being satisfied with what God's given us. You shall have no other gods before me. And he goes on and says, you may, shall not make any graven images and so on and so forth. Look at chapters, or verse 17. The other bookend. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And so on and so forth. Do you see what he sees in man's heart? He sees the desire that comes out of the heart that wants something that he thinks can be satisfied if he just changes relationships. Look at Matthew chapter 5. We're, we're getting there. Just a few more. Matthew chapter 5. I want to show you this. 
Because I want to show you that adultery and his concern with divorce does not come out of a bad system. It comes out of a bad heart. Verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, this isn't if I get attracted to somebody of the opposite sex, that's the same thing as going to bed, so I might as well go to bed. That's a, tra- that's a trick of the opposite side. This is nursing a fantasy so that it becomes alive in you. And then, look what happens. After a warning of get rid of whatever it takes to disconnect yourself from that particular temptation, look at the next thing he says, verse 31. And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, and so on and so forth. Now, I want to show you that verse even more clearly in Mark 10. Turn to Mark 10. And this is a repeat of this verse. It is also in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. And here's what I want, to, here's what I want you to see. Mark chapter 10, verse 11. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she's committing adultery. Don't disconnect those two. Please. I have people under excruciating guilt thinking that because they're divorced, they can't possibly marry again, and that's what that means. Connect those two. He who divorces his wife in order to marry another. See? There has lust grown up in the heart. Sometimes it's general, sometimes it's specific. But what Jesus is saying is this. If you think that you can legalize this thing and that makes you all right, when really all you're doing is following the lusts of your heart, you're committing adultery whether you're legally married or not. Because you divorced in order to get those that lust fulfilled. See? That's what, don't disconnect those two. Now, let me show you one more, and then I'm going to talk to you just a second about the difference between sin and a system. James. Turn to, turn to the book of James. Look at what it says very clearly here. Verse 14, first chapter. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You know what death they're talking about? One of the deaths they're talking about is the death of a relationship. The death of a person from the death of a relationship. Turn to uh, chapter 4. It says it again even more clearly. Verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's your dysfunctional family. 
Oh, no, it doesn't say that. It says, Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members you lust and do not have? So you commit murder. See? I want this. You're holding me back. Then you're gone. And you are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And here he's not talking about making our demands on our partner clear. He's talking about our relationship with God. Getting our needs met with God. And realizing that it's not just the system that needs correction. It is the spirit of the relationship that needs correction. Don't lose your idealism. Don't say to yourself, I can never have the greatest relationship with this person, whether it be your wife or a friend or a church family. Don't lose that. Because if you do, you will do it for the wrong reason. You will do it because you will say, I just don't have the resources. I take a look at this. It would take so much work to fix up this relationship. Do you know, you realize, don't you, that if you like a person, practically everything can be wrong with that relationship and it's still okay. But if a person's on your bad side, everybody can be, everything can be right, and it's still not okay. Let me tell you a story. When I first moved to Florida, Becky and I first moved to Florida, we wanted a pool, like every Yankee that moves down. Oh, Florida, we got a swimming pool. So we looked around, we got this house, and it was a little, a little bit older and in disrepair, but it had a pool. Well, we went out and looked at it, and the realtor went out and looked at it with us and said, mm, that really needs resurfacing. It had little black splotches all over and all that kind of stuff. So we said, well, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead. He, first he said, see if I can get the, the seller to resurface it for you. Well, that was no dice. And so we kept saying, well, we'll save up and get the pool resurfaced. Well, that was six and a half years ago. Now, you know as well as I do that as you go along, practically everything that comes along has priority over your resurfacing your pool. You know, you know Josh needs braces. Sorry, got to resurface the pool. You, got, you just prioritize things. It's a cosmetic thing. You don't like it or black stuff in there, but, but you, you live with it, you know? And for the first year or so, we did the water thing, you know, where you shake it up in a certain color and you put the thing back, you know? After that, it just started getting green and it started dumping chlorine in it, you know? <laughs> but in the back of my mind, I kept saying, oh, I've got to resurface this pool. And every discussion, every financial discussion that would come up, I know and we've got to resurface the pool would always be on the end of it, you know? And, and, and we kept saying, but we don't have the resources. We can't do it. We, you know, but someday maybe we will. And we just got tired of talking about it. And I would go down in that thing, and I'd brush, you know, and get the thing and float to the top, you know. I, would, I was such a perfectionist some days, I'd go down with a toothpick and dig out of the little hole, you know, I had a thing on, see, and I'd just hold my breath, go under, dig algae out of the pockmarks of the pool. you do that for an entire afternoon, come out looking like a prune. Well, anyhow... Guy in the, in the congregation here, Tom Wise, was over fixing a pool pump, and he took a look at the pool and said, Preacher, he said, let me see what I can do that with that for you. I said, okay, you know. In two weeks, that pool was sparkling clear. Now, it still needs resurfacing. It still has little pockmarks and a few little cracks. But you don't notice them. Because there's nothing black living in there. <laughs> the water is absolutely 
sparkling. For six and a half years, I have lived under the burden of having to resurface that pool. All I needed was clean water in the thing. Now look, listen to me. You think that to have the ideal relationship, what you have to do is hardwire it all different. You've got to completely resurface the thing. You've got to repair all the cracks and all the pockmarks. I'm saying to you, it's the spirit that will make the difference. Yes, there needs to be some correction. But when the spirit is pure, when the heart is pure, when what you're giving out is from God, you don't notice a surface. You have a clean and sparkling relationship. It's in the heart. That's what makes the difference. And one more, one more uh, principle, okay? I, I, I know we're, we're way over time. Please remember that it is not law or grace that makes the difference. But in the ideal, law and grace work together. Law and grace are a cooperative factor. I know five, 500 of you will walk out of here and say, well, so did he say divorce was all right or didn't he? <laughs> Just exactly what the Pharisees were talking to Jesus about. Well, is it or isn't it? I want to show you the humor of Jesus. Can I do that? Look at this. I love this. Jesus says, you don't divorce. Look, when you divorce, no matter what the cause is, there is death. There is no such thing as divorce without a price. There is no such thing as divorce with reward. There is death. And the, and the disciples absolutely panicked. Because they were thinking, look, either you've got to be against it or you've got to be for it. You've either got to be conservative or you've got to be liberal. And Jesus brought up the, the whole idea, and they took it as the maximum conservative sentence. Life term with the same person. How awful. And they said, well, if that's the relationship of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus looks at him and says, oh, this saying isn't for everybody. There's a group of people that are exempt from this saying. And you can hear him say, oh, good. <laughs> Who are they? And Jesus looks at him and says, eunuchs. <laughs> if you're a eunuch, don't worry about this. There's several kinds of eunuchs, you know, and they're going, oh, yeah. You know? Missed it completely. Okay. Listen, I want, I want to call... Tim and Eleanor up here to, to end this service, and I, and I, and I know that's going to cause a big headache in traffic, and I'm sorry, but i got a lot more to say. Come back next week. And bring all your friends who are having problems. Because <laughs> I want you to know God has not switched from plan A to plan B for your life. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your love, and thank you for your plan that does not get flunked because of our failures. Thank you for forgiveness. And thank you even more for the eyes to envision what you ultimately want for us and for the strength of the Spirit to follow in your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.